The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Italy's telecoms monopoly is under siege from KKR, the private equity firm once branded as a bunch of barbarians. The irony is they may turn out to be the good guys here. And who's got the hardest job in global finance? Stay tuned to find out. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. Welcome to The Views Room. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, a financial commentary arm of Reuters, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. Well, the top story in European finance this week involved barbarians sacking Rome. Not exactly, but KKR, the private equity firm that once upon a time was dubbed a barbarian at the gate, telephoned Telecom Italia with a $12 billion offer to take it private. It's a fascinating story, not least because of the checkered history of the former telecoms monopoly. A succession of raiders has used slivers of capital over the years to exert control over Telecom Italia. It's not been a happy tale for investors, though. They have seen some $23 billion of value evaporate over the past two decades, and the company, which has had more CEOs than there have been prime ministers in Italy of late, has been starved of capital and struggled to invest and compete. The irony here is that a KKR, once upon a time criticized for its difficult tactics and not treating shareholders well, is in a position to end years of crappy governance and poor treatment of minority shareholders. But only if the board engages in a fair and orderly process and evaluates the company's options in earnest. And in other matters, Gina Chan in Washington tells Swaha Patnaik why Jay Powell, the newly reconfirmed chair of the Federal Reserve, has the hardest job in global finance. Give a listen. So, guys, it's been a hell of a week in telecoms, in particular in Italian telecoms. Lisa, you are there in Milan. What's the read on this surprise, unsolicited bid by KKR for the national telecoms monopoly, Telecom Italia? How's it going down? Surprisingly, the political reaction so far has not been negative. Today, the industry minister, Giorgetti, was speaking. They, they haven't yet made an official comment, let's say, on this bid, uh, which is yet to be launched. But, you know, the, the idea is that maybe some comments will be made later. But the important thing is that the government has a golden power, a power to block a takeover. And so far, they haven't raise the prospect of using it. So it's a kind of a, a neutral stroke, positive approach to what could be a market-led uh, uh, um, approach. Yeah. I mean, Ed, you wrote about this when it, you know, when it dropped Sunday night, Monday morning. Um, and and there is, you, you've written a lot about telecoms companies around Europe, some of whom have also received uh, surprise offers from from private equity guys. Is there a sense that governments maybe realize that a lot of these one one time incumbents uh, need basically capital? They need to improve their networks. They need to make huge investments, and therefore they're going to need they're going to need an, a sort of open market for investing in there and even control corporate control. There are pennies dropping all over the place in in sort of telecoms ministries across Europe. The the valuations in the sector are still very depressed from 
before the coronavirus, which is in, in one sense, it's illogical that we have seen in the last 18 months that telecommunications are an even greater lifeblood of the economy than they were before. And you know, there's even greater demand for the services they provide. And yet companies and individuals aren't going to be paying more for those services. Um, telecoms companies are also having to make huge investments in 5G, huge investments in fiber optic um, capability, digging up roads throughout all our towns and cities. And it's a question of how you make a decent return on those investments. And the argument from the telecoms companies, and this argument is gaining more and more traction, is that there are just too many operators in the various countries in Europe to allow for individual companies to make a decent return. If you look at the United States and if you look at China, you've basically got three large operators who are therefore in a position to invest a significant amount of money, but charge a reasonable amount, a reasonable premium for their services in order that shareholders get just reward. In Europe, those just rewards are eaten away by competition. Yeah, one way to get around it is, on the one hand, the operators all say, oh, we want fewer uh, competitors, therefore we are can up our prices and becomes less competitive. Of course, that's yeah. not so for the consumer. The other way is to say, well, let's let's have the operators that are there Let's make sure that they thrive. Let's make sure that they have the capital, which one, one way to do that is to actually make have new ownership in a certain form of a private equity firm rather than, say, I don't know, another operator, no? That's the case, certainly in um, Spain. If you look at you know, KKR, KKR's bid for Telecom Italia is not the first move it's made on a European telco. Um, this time last year, it just bought Massmobile in, in Spain. And you know, they're, not, they're, they're not doing that because they want to start running a number four telecoms operator in Spain. They're doing it because they think this is the first play in a Europe-wide consolidation wave. Um, and I think Telecom Italia will end up as part of that as well. And government, I mean, the Italian government, among others, fleeced operators like Telecom Italia with 4G and, you know, these spectrum auctions, no, Lisa? I mean, in a sense, they own part of the problem. Yes, I mean, they, these uh, auctions, uh, which you just mentioned, were particularly expensive in Italy and have certainly created a problem for Telecom Italia, which was already heavily indebted um, to start with. Um, so, uh, I mean, these companies, including Telecom Italia, have a conundrum because they, they tend to start, you know, from a high level of debt and face these big investments, as we said. But at the same time, the uh, buyout firms, I mean, they see uh, a future in in the fiber um, uh, business uh, of uh, of telecom operators. I mean, th there's been quite a number of investments specifically aimed at that. So, when it comes to KKR, uh, it is possible that the end game is to try and maybe split the services uh, element, who maybe could be merged, uh, given that there is four opera services operator in Italy, and and uh, from the, the fiber network, so the the, the fixed line and and uh, you know future uh, upgraded fiber network. So that may be the plan. I mean, we don't yet know, but that may be the plan that uh, KKR has in mind for Telecom Italia. One of the ideas here is it's an infrastructure play. We keep saying KKR, KKR, but one has to differentiate a bit because it's not just yield fashioned uh, LBO, uh, RJR Nabisco, uh, 1980s uh, leverage buyout. In a sense, I mean, this is an, they have an infrastructure fund. The infrastructure fund wants, will probably have a longer time horizon, right? And will want some sort of almost a regulatory asset base, some sort of uh, a guaranteed lower 
return perhaps than they might get on, on other uh, investments, but one where they have a certain amount of certainty relative to the capital they invest. Isn't that part of the play, Ed? Oh yeah, that's what you've seen in um, certainly in the UK recently. I mean, if, if you look at the example of the open reach fiber optic network for, for British Telecom, the, or rather BT as it's now called, at the start of the year, there was a big, big regulatory review of the UK telecoms market, and this was crucial for you know the future investment plans in open reach. You know, it's going to cost 15 billion pounds to to roll out fibre across the UK. The people who hand over that 15 billion pounds are going to want a decent return, and the regulator here, for the first time, said that yes, they would guarantee to investors a quote unquote fair return. That's basically seen as being few percentage points above your your cost of capital and that, that was seen as giving the green light to BT really to hit the accelerator and it's going to be able to raise this capital shareholders are going to get a decent return consumers are not going to get fleeced because you know prices are regulated so that there's a sort of a Goldilocks type solution in, in the offing here that everybody will be able to to, to get a yeah. solution that, that suits all parties this is also a, a novel deal in the sense if we go back and look at Telecom Italia this is, a this is a company that was fully privatized, let's say, in 1997. Within two years, it was the object of, uh, of one of what was really like the largest, most exciting takeover of the single currency era, which was Roberto Colonino, a sort of relatively unknown guy from Mantua, Italy, um, uh, ends up raising tons of money, buys 50 plus a few shares, 50% plus a few shares, runs the company for a few years. And then it's just been a succession, he gets turfed out, a succession of, of sort of trophy hunting uh, investors. Then it goes on to Marco Tronchetti Provera and Pirelli and the Benetton families. They lose their shirts. I think uh, Pirelli shareholders lost something like $4 billion over the time they owned it. Then they hand it on to your friends at Telefonica, Ed, who then uh, have it for a few years, sell it at a loss. Then they, and they sell it well. They sell it to this guy, Vincent Bolloré, who's the uh, head of, of Vivendi, the, the chairman at the time. Now he's just the largest controlling shareholder. And now, so you have the succession of shareholders that kind of creep in with just under 30%, so they don't have to make a bid for the rest of, of the business. And they own a stake in this thing. And that's, I mean, that's, Lisa, has been the real problem for Telecom Italia, hasn't it? Is this governance of internecine warfare at the board and among the shareholders means the damn company can't get anything done. Totally. And there's been a continuous um, change at the top in terms of CEOs, you know, the last five years, uh, you know, possibly four CEOs. I mean, this has really not helped, uh, you know, to, to stabilize the company. And as you say, Vivendi, which is the largest shareholder, has control with just uh, below 24 percent, um, which is, um, you know, an attempt to to sort of uh, control without really fully owning the, the financial risk kind of now you just you just get to impede rather than actually set strategy indeed indeed but you know they 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 appear unhappy about the kkr beard which probably was opportunistic given that uh, the shares were close to all-time lows um if the value of the offer does not accurately reflect um, the value of Telecom Italia, the, the board should probably fight for a higher price, but does nothing prevent if even to launch a full takeover if, if they think they can do better? 
Well, well, that'll be the day. I don't. I let's. I think we could probably all safely bet that that is not going to happen. <laughs> okay, maybe I should rephrase it. I don't know. No, no. But I mean, it's just a, it's a, it would be extraordinary. But that's how open an open process, a transparent, you know, open capital market would work. That would be good for Italy. No. Please that would be absolutely good for Italy, and it would just give it a more, if give the company a more stable governance, which is what it needs to potentially thrive. So, but one of the problems, of course, is is that the you know the Telecom Italia board haven't even made a sort of a, a response. They haven't even taken the call from KKR yet to say, you know, th thanks for the uh, thanks for the offer. Let's sit down and have a chat about price and and you know the birds and the bees and the other implications for the various. Um, parts of the company, including, of course, it's 42,000 workers. So, yeah, you're right. There should be a big debate at the corporate level that will involve the government, will involve Vivendi, um, and everybody can get their sort of propositions onto the table. But that hasn't even started yet. It's crazy. There is a board meeting on Friday. So my my prediction is that they will hire Goldman Sachs and Bank of America to assess strategic options for a special committee of the board. Rob, I think your prediction has a relatively high chance of success. <laughs> Well, it's for Telecom Italia shareholders, let us hope. But anyway, thank you guys for this. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about this in future weeks, no doubt. Cool. Thank Ciao. you. I'm Swaha Patnaik, Global Economics Editor, and joining me today is Gina Chon, our Washington columnist. Hey, Gina. Hey, Swaha. Busy week in Washington with Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell's renomination. It was um, not as much of a home run as one might have thought uh, six months ago. Were you surprised? Well, I think for, for President Biden, the writing was on the wall. Um, it did take him a, a long time and we were all in a bit of pain waiting and waiting for this decision to come out. But in the end, I mean, Powell had the easiest route to Senate confirmation where the other top contender, Governor Lael Brainerd, would have a much tougher time and, and still might as the vice chair nominee. But that also um, helped clear the path for Powell, in addition to his performance during the pandemic with the Fed steering, it's a, you know, steering the Fed's aggressive response to it. Absolutely. I mean, one of the interesting things at the moment is that Powell has actually changed the Fed's framework, monetary policy framework, to take a much more sort of tolerant approach towards inflation. So what we have is somebody who's quite dovish, given the historical sweep of the Fed's monetary policy decision making, and somebody who's even more dovish as a possible contender for the job at a time when inflation's at a 31-year high in the U.S., yeah, it's uh, definitely creates some skepticism of whether the Fed will have the chops, the forward thinking to to be able to tackle inflation if indeed it gets out of control. Where it seems like you know the numbers we're seeing month to month um, definitely indicates that the consumer price index in October at 6.2% year-over-year growth was at a 31-year high. So it's definitely uh, becoming a bigger concern, and it's a big concern for the Biden administration because a lot of those price hikes are in day-to-day -day items that people buy, whether that's food or gas from their cars. So it's a worry, and it's going to be a big challenge for Powell because, as you say, he has made um, – maximum employment and sort of redefine that to want to include women and people of color who have 
been hit the hardest in the pandemic and have seen the slowest recovery as things sort of get back to normal. And so whether he can be patient uh, on that front or if uh, inflation sort of gets ahead of him and forces his hand. Absolutely. You, you called it, I think, in the piece you wrote, the worst job in finance, the Fed chair job at the moment. I mean, do you think this is a temporarily worst job in finance or is it going to be that way for a while? Well, he's in this position where he's sort of, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't, because if he does raise interest rates to contain inflation, that could slow down hiring by putting the brakes on demand. And that could hurt some of these more vulnerable groups hit during the pandemic, and that will anger progressives. On the other hand, if he moves too slowly to wait for a fuller jobs recovery, then these price spikes could continue and anger, you know, Republicans and others who are out there talking about Biden inflation. People are talking about, you know, with Thanksgiving um, coming up that, you know, maybe you shouldn't buy a turkey this year because it's more expensive than in previous years. So he's in a tough spot either way. And what do you think having Lyle Brainard as you know, his vice chair, what difference does that make to the Fed? She's been pretty influential already in shaping thinking during her time at the US Central Bank in general. Yeah, I I feel like she's almost had that role in sort of a a shadow way, Uh, even though Richard Clarita is is technically the vice chair. Powell has made Lale basically his right-hand person and really elevated her, um, relied on her during uh, the pandemic response and, and afterward. So having her there really puts certain progressive issues at the forefront. She will be probably the lead, as she has been already, on the Fed's views on climate change and risk to the financial system. Um, She's also a bit more dovish than Powell is. So that will be interesting partnership. And as we said, with inflation becoming their their biggest problem. And then on financial regulation, she has been the lone dissenter during the Donald Trump administration, where the Fed did roll back a few rules, whether it's on the stress test or the Volcker rule limiting proprietary trading. And whether she pushes on that the way she did as governor, even though she won't have the role as a vice chair of supervision, which is now vacant, she could still be pretty influential on that front. Absolutely. And the markets always project the Fed as the chair, but this is a team. It works together. There are different views on the Fed in the Board of Governors. How much difference do you think just one person can make? Did it matter? And were we fixating too much on who was going to get that top job? Yeah, well, I think it was also um, a question of whether there was going to be continuity because Trump was sort of an outlier in that sense, and at least in recent history, where he decided not to renominate Janet Yellen, who was a Obama appointee and a Democrat, and and went with Powell, a Republican. And traditionally, no matter who, what party was in power, they had reappointed the Fed chair for a second term, um, at least if that person had um, steered the economy in, in a fairly competent way. 
But as you say, there he is one person, and there's definitely a lot more noise coming from some of the other members on the rate-setting committee about whether the Fed does need to move faster on interest rates. We'll see where the other board seats shake out, but if Biden fills all the slots uh, for the first time in several years, the democratically appointed governors will outnumber the Republicans. So how that uh, changes sort of the Fed's priorities and, and direction um, will be interesting to see. And, and it will be Powell's job to try to kind of manage that group and try to wring out some consensus from them. Absolutely. Sounds like an interesting uh, second term for Powell and some difficult challenges. Gina, thank you very much for joining us uh, for this chat. Thanks for having me. That's our show for the week. Thanks to our producer, Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong, and to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Bye-bye.